Namuetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namuetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namuetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami <coughs> So about halfway through the retreat now, I think. And uh, <clears throat> thank you very much for the questions and comments. They're really helpful because they're like a springboard for me to give some reflections. Otherwise, my mind's a bit blank. So thank you. And they're great questions. And one thing that's um, <clears throat> I'm hearing about today is all different experiences that people have in their meditation practice. And sometimes, you know, we can have quite strange experiences, um, a bit a bit um, perturbing, a bit concerning sometimes, the kinds of things that can happen, um, physical feelings that are unusual or um, kind of uh, powerful, um, unexpected, and uh, going hot and cold, shaking, sweating, uh, and also on the 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 thing in the thinking, um, we can we can have very strange thoughts actually, and quite sometimes jumbled, disconnected, fragmented, confused thoughts. Um, it can often be as if we're dreaming. You know, I sometimes think it's almost as if we're delving into the subconscious sometimes, the kinds of material that can come into the mind. Sometimes we can have very vivid memories of past events coming up for us as if we're reliving them. And that can also be sometimes shocking, sometimes disturbing. And so all sorts of um, interesting experiences, and well, interesting is one word, isn't it? <laughs> Difficult perhaps, uh, painful experiences. Um, and and all of this, you know, is quite normal, really, in my understanding, uh, and more. You know, I've only mentioned a few things. Um, whatever we experience is, you know, it's incredible the range, the capacity of the human mind, isn't it? And the body itself, the kind of bodily experiences we can have. Um, there's almost no limit. And uh, the quality that really starts to come to the fore when we uh, are willing to, to sit through you know, the gamut of all these different uh, happenings, the quality is, is that of equanimity. You know, we, we, we do, you know, over time begin to realize, well, actually, I, can, I don't have to do anything. I can be with this, strange as it may be, uh, perturbing as it may be, I can, I can be with this. And that's really all we have to do. And then this, this uh, evenness of mind, 
starts to manifest as a response to our experience. We can take it in our stride. We have a greater capacity to feel and experience a whole range of things. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Because this translates, of course, into everyday life. It's as if our container is getting bigger and bigger. And when unwanted things happen, um, difficult things happen in life, there's much more of a pause before we have any sense of reacting. This is great. It's almost as if time can slow down for us. And we start to, through our body awareness, we can start to notice uh, emotions before they really become very strong, very powerful. We can see them beginning to surface, or feel them rather, in the body, beginning to manifest, the beginnings of anger starting to come up, the tension beginning to mount. And we can catch these things through awareness and watch them dissipate. And it doesn't all happen at once, of course, you know, but people can notice very often uh, where I was, <clears throat> you know, immediately triggered by such and such person saying that these kind of things to me. Now it's, it's, it's not quite so powerful. I'm not quite so reactive. I'm a little bit more spacious around it. Oh, I still react, but not as much. And then gradually over time, <coughs> we can begin to notice things really fading away so that we're a lot calmer generally. We're a lot more contained. My experience is this doesn't mean there's not a lot going on internally. Actually, there, there's often more going on internally. We can have more reactivity there. But it's, but it's, it's sort of held in check. It's a reactivity, but it's, it's internal. So it's not going out there. It's not manifesting as much. It's a sort of slightly wishful thinking on my part. But I think this is the case. I think we really get to be more um, safe to be with, more in control of our uh, relationship to the world, you know, so that we can choose how we respond to experiences rather than uh, just being like things being like a, like a knee jerk response. The other thing that can happen on retreats is that you know we can we can be surprised by our responses on a fairly mundane level uh, to noise in the room, for instance. <clears throat> we can be really annoyed by it. We can surprise ourselves by how annoyed we are we can really start to hate the people who make noises. <laughs> We're thinking, but that, that, that's really not me. Surely this is not, this isn't happening. But it, it can happen. We can feel rage and enmity arise towards perfectly innocent people <laughs> doing not very much at all. Somebody goes in front of me in the, in the queue for lunch and I want to tear them apart. <laughs> Of course, we're not going to do those things. We know that. But the feelings can come up very strongly because we're noticing. You know, there's no holds barred. We're really aware of what's happening inside. And we're, not, we're learning not to repress and suppress these very, in a way, natural feelings. And the more we can get to own them, I say own them, first of all, to own them, then the more we can let them go. 
Own them, by that I mean experience them. Allow them. Awake up to what's happening inside of us. You know, we have these animal bodies and these very primitive instincts right down here in the gut somewhere or in the back of the brain, somewhere in the brainstem, things sparking off, you know, survival instincts can be triggered by the most, in a way, sometimes quite trivial things, you know. And, and when the survival instincts are triggered, we'll do anything to survive. We have this um, tendency to, to fight, you know, for our safety. And it's programmed in the body. It's hardwired in us. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not uh, who and what I am, but we can see that the, this physical form has a whole range of responses to the world around it. And uh, some of them are, you know, pretty shocking, actually, on the on the level of the rational mind. So it's you know it's quite uh, quite a common experience for people to feel a lot of strong emotion towards their fellow meditators, and um, we all look terribly peaceful. <laughs> we're all very kind, and we're all very. Um, conscious of the space of each other, of course, and we're all very safe to be with. We're all good people. Um, but we can nevertheless be really stirred up by each other. Uh, dormitory at night, <clears throat> you know, someone's snoring. You can just want to throttle them, <laughs> kick them out, get rid of them, you know, eliminate, you know. And so it's really a very good opportunity then, isn't it? When we're all together like this, we actually have a chance to live as a sangha, as a community, to, to really see how it is with people, you know. Put a group of people together, <clears throat> even people who know and love each other, but even more perhaps people who, who, who don't know each other really very well. So there's not any kind of social grease there to start with. And and you could say a retreat is a slightly pressured situation. It's certainly a situation where we're opening up. We're allowing ourselves to become more sensitive, more vulnerable, and more in, in touch with our feelings. And so you put people together and, and there's going to be a lot of friction, you know, a lot of rubbing each other the wrong way. And of course, that's what monasteries are all about. <laughs> That's what <clears throat> Sangha life for the monks and nuns is really. That's a big part of it. It's part of the Ajahn Chah tradition for sure. Ajahn Chah was really interested in putting people together and, and just turning up the pressure, giving them a bit of stress and seeing how they could manage. And it's a wonderful training because, because we do get to see these corners of the mind that we wouldn't otherwise be able to access. Now, before I came to live in the monastery, I thought I was really a very placid. I was a very placid person. I very rarely lost my temper. And I was, <clears throat> you know, very calm and peaceful because I meditated twice a day. And I've been meditating for many years. And I felt I was quite close to liberation, actually. I was doing well. You know, there were not many defilements to be found. I couldn't remember the last time I'd lost it, you know, and it... And then I came to live at Amravati. Well, it's a very humbling experience. 
you know, to suddenly, you know, you know, basically previously I was living on my own much of the time. I did what I wanted. I ate what I liked. And I, I totally ignored people that I didn't feel comfortable with. They just didn't exist for me. I would, I would tune in with the people that I liked, that I could harmonize with, and I'd notice them, and they could exist. They were allowed in my world. But the people that I didn't really resonate with, I just completely ignored them. Then I came to the monastery. Well, there's all sorts of people in the monastery. <laughs> there's a whole variety, the whole spectrum of humanity. It's marvelous. So suddenly there you are, you're living with people with whom you're not compatible at all. <laughs> Can't really find anything in common. <clears throat> Can't really understand them. Don't really like them. <laughs> and then we have to live together. And, and not only that, but also there's a, a real encouragement to learn to treat everyone the same. And to love everyone equally and not to make any distinctions, you know, between people. Not to hang out with the ones that I like and to reject or ignore the ones I don't like. It just doesn't work in community. It just doesn't work. So we have to, to train ourselves to let go of our preferences, our likes and dislikes. <clears throat> and so this is a great opportunity for us to step into that realm and to see how strong actually these preferences can be, the likes and the dislikes. Because here we are, we have a routine. You didn't choose it. I sort of did. It's not a routine you'd necessarily want to follow in your ideal world. Getting up at five o'clock isn't everybody's cup of tea. In fact, you might like a cup of tea before you get up <laughs> and the food you know it's actually really wonderful food but it might not suit everybody you might not want to eat at that particular time you might want to eat now and there's nothing available and so on and so on we're, we're out of our comfort zone that's the idea well for some of you maybe many of you it's actually really comfortable it's a lovely routine everyone's very kind and it's a beautiful place to be it's actually quite a, a luxurious home from home, isn't it? But, you know, there may be aspects of the routine or the, the schedule or the working meditation, which we're going to start calling active meditation to get rid of that work connotation. But, you know, that might be you may not like that or there may be just some aspects of the place, perhaps a dormitory being in the dormitory, that, that are not completely um, comfortable for us. And that's great. So to be able to come out of our comfort zone and just to, to let that be and to see what happens and to allow, you know, not to make a problem out of really very, uh, you could say, childlike emotions, very, you know, petulant attitudes, you know, resenting people for, for what feels like no good reason. But there it is, there's this burning resentment, you know. And just to, to be able to work with these feelings. It's difficult when we allow ourselves to have what we, what we want <clears throat> to really do the work. 
And, you know, we, we will tend to, to make it happen that we get what we want, given a choice, you know. So we can watch this. This leads me on to speak about right intention. Right intention <clears throat> on, on the path of practice, it's one of the path factors, of course. And it's one of the wisdom factors. And there are three aspects to right intention. I find this really beautiful because they, they say a lot about our, the, the, the basic understanding of human nature in Buddhism. The first two aspects of right intention <clears throat> are non-harming, non-ill non will and non-cruelty. Non-ill will and non-cruelty. which of course are negatives, <clears throat> to, to refrain from, to avoid ill will, animosity, hatred, and cruelty. There's nothing in encouraging us or, or exhorting us to be loving or to be kind. And that's really interesting to me because my understanding of this is that the right intention is simply to refrain from anything that's not loving and kind. And of course, what, what then manifests is loving and kind. Why? Because that's our true nature. That's what we're really like. And so it's almost like, you know, clear away the debris, clear away the defilements, clear away the confusion, refrain from harm, from ill will and cruelty. And this is what we have. We, we don't have to try to be good. <clears throat> we don't have to try and be nice. We are good and we are nice when we're happy and when we're well, when we're not confused, when we're not affected by ignorance, by desire, by aversion. This is our natural state. And I love this because it's almost like we don't have to strive to, 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 be, to be good, to be better people. No, we just have to refrain from certain things. Uh, practice restraint and my sense is there's a process of you know we, we have <clears throat> first of all um, harmful behaviours okay we start practicing and we develop right intention not to harm not to be cruel and so we rein it in you know and our behaviour becomes more clear, more healthy more mature, more Harmless, we become safer to be with, trustworthy people. And then in our speech, we can start to really look at that. <clears throat> you know, it's amazing how easy it is to, to hurt and harm people with our speech. And we don't even mean it a lot of the time, but things will come out. Uh, it's very subtle, isn't it, speech? It's a, it's a it's a work in progress for most of us, isn't it? How to how to keep improving, how to keep sort of um, rather checking uh, unwholesome speech, <clears throat> hurtful speech, harsh speech, coarse speech, um, deceitful or dishonest speech, and mundane speech. You know, kind of gossip, idle gossip. 
These are ways in which we can really polish up our speech. And it's really just paying attention to this right intention, not to be cruel, not to harm. Either immediately or in the context of speaking about people behind their backs or maligning people from a distance. This you know, can be very subtle sometimes, undermining people with our speech. So there's endless, endless possibilities for mindfulness here and for sharpening our intention. So then we get to, to really kind of purify our speech so that we only speak when there's a good reason. We only speak the truth. We only speak that which is beneficial to ourselves or to others. <clears throat> and we, we start to refrain from other kinds of speech and so we're a bit quieter perhaps. And then we can turn to more uh, examination and scrutiny of our thinking. And of course we all know that's where it starts. That's the beginning of speech and action. So as we refine our action and refine our speech by avoiding harm, by avoiding ill will and cruelty, then we get the chance to start looking at the mind and what we're producing in the way of harmful thoughts, cruel thoughts. And this is really a wonderful place because we're not actually doing anything uh, to hurt or harm anybody. It's just all inside. It's all inside of us. And we can begin to clean this up, you know, clean up our inner act and tidy up our thinking, and we can do this. You know, we can be the masters or mistresses of our minds. We can choose when to think and what we think. And it's just a matter of developing our practice to be able to pick up more and more quickly when we're having a thought that creates suffering for us, you know. <clears throat> if we think ill of anybody else, we suffer immediately, we're suffering because it's not nice, it, it hurts us to think in this way. If we think uh, <clears throat> thoughts of, of how awful we are, you know, we can really berate ourselves, can't we? It's, it, we can be so cruel, actually, to ourselves. And most people are, are very nice to other people and even largely think quite nice thoughts about other people, but they can think the most horrific thoughts about themselves. Do you know what I mean? We can be really horrible to ourselves. And it's often when we're suffering that we just, you know, you know, give ourselves even more pain on top of the pain that we're already feeling because we judge our suffering as not okay. We're not okay because we're suffering. <clears throat> we can even do really crazy things like someone else will harm us. Uh, you know, we're, we're hurt and harmed in some way and we blame ourselves for that as well. It's not very rational, but it's very common for us to do that, to feel shame when someone else has behaved in a shameful way towards us. And we, we somehow take that on ourselves. <clears throat> and, we, and, we, and we stow it away, you know, in the body. And these things have a chance to come up when we practice. So really looking at... Uh, ill will and cruelty, both externally towards others, I mean, and also towards ourselves. So we can really, you know, there's so much to investigate here. And remember right intention, because all it takes is the willingness to keep noticing where is their cruelty, where is their ill will. 
And it's not to make ourselves bad because of those things, because they're not who and what we are. <clears throat> it's our work, our job to strip these things away. How do we strip them away? By experiencing them, noticing them, being awake to them, you know. So no doubt many of us have been sitting here having all sorts of thoughts that we would rather not have had. We'd rather not be thinking this way. But it's really okay because this is our opportunity to notice. Okay, this is what's here. And the noticing is somehow, it's like shining a light in a dark place, you know. The thoughts, they, they, can't, really, <clears throat> they can't really continue to manifest when they're fully seen, when they're fully witnessed, without uh, layers, overlay of judgment or self-criticism or reactivity. And don't be disheartened because it's, it's okay if we do have uh, dark thoughts and then immediately start berating ourselves. We can notice that. Just notice. Notice what we're doing. The more we see, the less inclination there will be to react and to add to our suffering. We don't have to try too hard. We just have to be aware. And these things will gradually resolve themselves. It's like, a, it's like our, our mind is like a great tangled mass, you know, like a big tangle of wool or, or string or rope, all intertwined, interconnected and confused, you know. And we meditate and what happens is it begins to disentangle. <clears throat> the knots begin to loosen. <clears throat> and in this process, we have to actually feel the pain of all this entanglement, bit by bit, you know, bit by bit, just feeling the, the, the awfulness of that. And, and in that process of being willing to feel the suffering, then this, this, this unknotting can begin to happen. Now, we don't choose how it happens, but we can simply be aware of this, this piece this piece. You can be quite sure that whatever needs to arise will arise. The next most important piece, you know, the next most tricky, convoluted, tangled knot that needs to arise will arise when the time's right. And so our job is simply making space for that, making space and being very alert. And don't, you know, not to buy into our thinking not even to buy into our feelings, nothing. No idea, no concept, no thought, no feeling is, is something to hold on to. And we're getting to know this better and better. And so anyway, the third aspect of right intention <clears throat> is renunciation. Renunciation. So coming here on a retreat like this, we're giving up a lot, isn't it? We're giving up our comfort zone. And uh, even if you love coming on retreats, you know, and it's all very familiar to you, you love the place, still, you know, there's some degree of, of having to adapt, having to let go of certain wishes, Actually, the wonderful thing about renunciation is that the more we give up, the more we benefit. The more we let go of what we like, 
the more happiness very naturally wells up from within us. Why? Because we realize that we don't need anything. You know, whatever you think you need, it's like we're creating a, a sense of lack here. <clears throat> I need something out there in order to be happy means I'm not okay as I am. There's something missing. And that's just not true, you know. So if we can notice what we really love and, and be willing to, you know, loosen the grip, habits, you know, cups of tea, you know, cigarettes, drink, TV, books, whatever. You know, it could be anything. Uh, and many of the things that we love and we like to indulge in are harmless, completely harmless, completely wonderful. But we can just notice what, what are the things that I'm attached to. And it's a really good exercise to, to see if we can do without them for a day, a week, an hour, five minutes. <laughs> and just to see, you know, if we, if we defer that gratification, that's when we start to notice how attached we really are. It's impossible to know while we're in the midst of our habits. You know, it's impossible to know. You can think, oh, I, I take it or leave it. And then someone takes it away. <sighs> Whoa. You know, the killer instinct can come out. <laughs> so it's really interesting that we don't really know until we let go of something, or rather until we are willing to renounce something, some small thing, you know, some small pleasure. Um, we don't know until we, we try renunciation how much we are holding on, which is why, of course, the monastic life is the way it is. There's an encouragement to give up everything. And we start, you know with the easy things. It's actually quite easy to give up money. What a relief. Can you imagine? No more tax returns, no mortgage, no shopping. It's wonderful, wonderful. And then we give up our possessions. And that's a relief as well, isn't it? No more insurances. <laughs> no more worrying about being burgled or you know, losing this or losing that. Now, I'm sure that many of you are not so attached to your possessions. I'm not implying that you are. It's just giving examples of what we, we tend to give up before we come into monastic life. Many people out there, you're not attached at all. And I'm really attached to my mugs, actually. <laughs> you know, we can be attached to things. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a little thing, but the, the, the attachment can be the same. And the suffering's the same. So it's not that monastics are more free, necessarily. But there is this tremendous encouragement to give up some things. And those things are easy to give up. Mugs, mm, mm, not so easy. But more, more importantly, you know, the, the possessions, the material things are as nothing compared to my views. My views. You know, my sense of right and wrong. You know, we hold very tenaciously and tightly to these things, to our thoughts, to our views, to our opinions, to concepts that we have, to our idea of what the spiritual life is. 
there, I don't think there are two monastics who would have the same idea of what the spiritual life is, for instance. It's not that we argue about these things, but what I'm really trying to say is that we can be very, very attached to certain things. And those things are generally in the field of thinking, mental formations. And so coming into a monastery, living in a community, this is the work that we get to do then, is to look at that. Look at how we like to chop carrots. And then someone says, no, you do it like that. You say, no, don't. I do it like this. No, you don't. You do it like that. You think, oh, how ridiculous. But it really matters. <laughs> and I'm really outraged when someone's telling me to do it differently. And that's just the beginning, you know. Wonderful. Wonderful. So renunciation. This is the third aspect of right intention. Right intention, which leads to wisdom. So just to maybe consider, you know, Ways in which renunciation can come into our lives. We can practice renunciation. It doesn't have to be big scale. We don't have to give everything up and enter a monastery. We can start with the things that we, you know, it can often be rather mundane things, the things that we really love. And just as an exercise, uh, see if you can put this aside or that aside and, and how that is and notice then the longing and the wanting, the yearning, and the desire that can come into the mind. And there's a fantastic opportunity right there to see the first, second noble truths. What's the cause of suffering? This desire. Someone asked me about the um, dependent origination, the 12 steps of dependent origination. And I thought, I can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very big question, really. It's a very big topic. I might talk about it tomorrow, I don't know. But one thing that's very significant to me about the this uh, this teaching of the Buddha, which is the dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, it's a, it's, a, it's a description of the causes of suffering. It's a description of samsara, samsaric existence, how and why it happens. And in short, you know, the cause of suffering is ignorance. It's not seeing things clearly. It's not understanding the way things are. And this creates a sense of self, a sense of permanence, a sense of wanting that creates a cycle of suffering, of birth and birth and death, and all that's in between. But there's one link in this, this, uh, this chain of events from ignorance to suffering, uh, which is the link between feeling and craving. Vedana, Pachaya, Tanha. And I was uh, trained as a Goenka student, like probably many of you. And Goenkaji, he, he, he's really picked up on this particular teaching and he makes much of it. And it's, it's a very helpful way of approaching our practice, actually, to see that fundamentally, you know, we have a pleasant feeling and we want more of it. And we have an unpleasant feeling in the body and we want to get away from it. And this, you know, you can, see, you can say pinpoints the source of all our suffering because what we're doing is we're, we're relating to reality in a way that's pushing it 
away or pulling it towards us. And we don't have the power to do that. You know, so we're trying to, in a way, control or in a way, change the way things are <clears throat> rather than simply accepting the way things are. In the verses of the, the great, the sixth Zen patriarch, these wonderful verses that he wrote, the first two lines, the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. And our preferences begin right there. It's the feeling of pleasant, give me more. Pain, unpleasant, get it away, get rid of it. So, you know, in our practice, we can come to this place and we can really observe. And of course, this is a, an encouragement to observe the feelings. It's at the feeling level that we have this immediate reactivity to, to everything around us, to our lives, to our experiences. And if we can continue to, to be mindful of the body in whatever we're doing, which we can do through practice, through mindfulness practice, then we, we can immediately notice when liking and disliking arise. First in the body, pleasant or unpleasant feeling, and then almost immediately in the mind. I want, I don't want. I like, I don't like. Now when we practice renunciation, give something up that we like, there's a chance to really notice. I want. Something's missing. Not okay. You know? And we don't need to seek out the other, you know, the difficulties, the vicissitudes when things happen that we don't want. We don't need to create more of that for ourselves. It's bound to come our way. There are going to be situations again and again that we don't like, we don't want. It's not okay. And just to see almost the, the immediate response, push it away, get rid of it. And this is a very helpful way to practice in everyday life. <clears throat> because here we are on retreat, we're developing our awareness. We're developing the, 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 the container. We're resourcing ourselves so that when we go out into our lives, which is where all this matters, where it all comes into play, we're more able, as I said at the beginning, to pause before we act, to reflect before we speak to feel what's actually happening inside us rather than trying to get away from it if, if we don't like it, to be present with painful feeling. It's an enormous power in the world. It's an enormous gift to the world because we're people of peace then. And looking around our group, it's really wonderful to me. I can see how international we are. We've got people here from all over the world it's really wonderful, and here we are, we're living very peacefully together. Whatever's going on in our minds from moment to moment, here we are, and it's a very harmonious, loving, friendly, warm, respectful community, because we're practicing, practicing the good teachings. So, you know, we take this out into the world, we might feel... You know, it's only one person in my workplace or in my family or situation. But, you know, one person who's not reacting, one person who's willing to feel unpleasant feeling and just be present with it, 
patiently and not say respond in a, in the same way somebody gives you a bit of a disrespectful attitude we don't have to respond to that we don't have to react to that we can be kind and we do and and we're learning this you know the meditation teaches us almost like we're retraining our minds we're retraining ourselves to be people of peace of peace and of goodwill and it, this is what comes you know <clears throat> so it's a tremendous force in the world it's a force for the good and this is what uh, you know what our our practice here will uh, naturally lead into but you know you can go out into the world and uh, notice this we don't have to be sitting we don't have to be eyes closed feeling the body or noticing the breath this practice of liking and disliking noticing wanting and not wanting preferences looking for where we have preferences we can do this it's very easy to do this in almost any situation you we can be sitting in a meeting in the middle of a conversation and notice aversion wanting you see it's 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 everyday experience and it's very easy to notice so if we uh consciously determine or practice spotting the likes and the dislikes this chain this part of the chain of dependent origination see the desire and the aversion as they arise in the mind we become very masterful you know because seeing it is we have a handle on these things as soon as we're aware of aversion it's no longer affecting us unconsciously and controlling what we do we we're, we're the we're the witness and then we can choose what to do which is to choose not to react to it so we free ourselves up so this is a way of practicing continuously in whatever situations we find ourselves in and of course the formal practice is really important too you know to sit because we're recharging our batteries we're developing our awareness when we sit we're giving ourselves uh, a lot of peace a lot of space we're giving ourselves a gift aren't we every time we sit so this is really important but then we can apply the practice apply it in every situation apply it at home apply it at work apply it wherever we go it's wonderful so i really encourage you to look at intention look at right intention consider that and keep noticing the liking and the disliking moment by moment thank you for listening andavaya dama kataya sadu karam dadama se